You're listening to the NASM CPT Podcast with Rick Ritchie, the official podcast of the National Academy of Sports Medicine. Welcome to the NASM CPT Podcast. My name is Rick Ritchie. Thank you so much for being with us today. And thank you for everyone who on Instagram was able to uh, do the countdown timer in preparation for this particular event. And the reason we had so many people do that is not just because of who we have on the show today, but it's because of what we're going to be talking about. It's one of the foundational components of why people go to personal trainers. It is because of weight management. And we have a wonderful guest with us today. Katie Coles is with us, and she is a registered dietitian. She's highly educated in the realm of nutrition, and she's going to be talking to us today about diet and weight loss. So Katie, introduce yourself. Tell us who you are and uh, tell us a little bit about Avatar Nutrition and some of the projects you've been working on. And then let's talk about diet and weight loss. All right. So you guys know my name is Katie Coles. And as Rick was saying, I'm a registered dietitian. Um, My background is actually in biology. That's what I got my bachelor's of uh, science in. And then I got a master's in nutrition. Ended up going back to school actually when I was almost 30 years old. So that was a big accomplishment. Um, afterwards, I worked. <laughs> oh, thank you. I know it's, it's hard when you're older, but in some ways it's hard, but in some ways it's easier because you're like focused and you're hyper driven, you know exactly yeah. what you want. Yeah. So when I came out, I started working in research and development for a nutrition company. I was making products there, doing a lot of education on the science behind the products during that time. Um, I was also doing fitness shows and I fell in love with the concept of flexible dieting prior to that time. Like a lot of people who do shows, I was restricting my food intake. Um, I was really struggling with binge eating and I had this mentality related to food that some foods were good. Some foods were bad. So it was really destructive. And I just found myself cycling between under eating and then overeating. So I became so passionate about flexible dieting because I figured out, you know, that you can eat foods that are off limit and moderation and just decimated this idea of good and bad foods. And so at that point, I ended up quitting my job um, and I ended up trying to start this company that was based on flexible dieting because I wanted to bring that to the masses and really help people eliminate food guilt and yet be able to maintain their body in a sustainable way. So that's how Avatar was founded. And what Avatar Nutrition is, is it's a digital diet coach. So what it does is it sets your intake of protein, carbs, and fats basically tells you how much you need to eat based on all the anthrometrics that collects about your body and your goal, things like that. And then the real magic happens when it changes those recommendations every week. So there are a lot of apps out there, right? Like my fitness pal that gives you a starting point of what to eat for your goal, but it doesn't continue to make adjustments as you lose weight. And metabolism isn't stagnant, so that's the real magic behind our system is that every week you weigh in, and just like you would with like a personal coach, we look at your progress based on what we predicted, and then we change our food recommendations. So that's how Avatar works. All right, so talk to me about flexible dieting and the good and bad foods, and you know, I, I hear it all the time, not just... Um, not just specific foods, but sometimes specific macronutrients, right? That these are are bad. And I, I think no one really believes that a macronutrient is bad within itself. 
Um, but certain foods are always going to be labeled by large groups of people as bad foods. And, you know, you can you can pick about any baked good that you could get in the morning uh, as a breakfast food. And people will look at it and go, oh, that is bad. A croissant is bad. A donut is bad. A bear crawler is bad. And, and, and if you think about it, they we see them as being bad foods, and yet we all kind of want them in, to some degree or another. Uh, is flexible dieting just saying at, every once in a while, give yourself a break? Yeah, I think it is. A lot of people, you know, there's this idea that IAFYM or flexible dieting is trying to fit as much, quote unquote, bad food into your diet as possible, meaning food that is laden with sugar that doesn't have a lot of vitamins and minerals in it, not a lot of fiber, just things that taste good, your treats. And that's just not the case. What flexible does is it allows you to have those foods in moderation as long as it fits in within the entire day in the context of what you're trying to do. So as long as you're getting the right amount of protein, fat and carbs, you can have things like that as long as you're balancing it out for the rest of the day. So it really does eliminate guilt. And I think where that's where this diet is really powerful. There are no food, specific foods that should absolutely be demonized or considered off limits in all situations, you know, as long as it fits within your budget with your, your calories for the day. And so, yeah, I think there are a lot of diets that are effective. You know, you mentioned there are people who are afraid of carbs, right? Who are not necessarily afraid of carbs, but just advocate not eating carbs, that you don't need them, you know, go on a ketogenic diet, it's more filling. Um, there are things about it that are good for you, but really any diet has the potential to work as long as it effectively reduces your calorie intake. But it does come into does come down to calories. So it doesn't make sense to demonize any one of these macronutrient groups. Let me let me ask a question about the calories then, because I get questions about this a lot. Um, that sometimes people aren't losing weight because they are eating too few calories, uh, and and I hear I hear kind of interesting things about that. So I just want somebody who's who's studied and is educated in this to to speak on this concept and the starvation mode and all of these interesting things that I hear where. I get confused because I, I I hear differing things. So maybe let's have you speak to it because I know from from following you on Instagram, super fit, uh, lean, and, and you follow it, right? Like you you do the the dieting. Uh, the the dieting is not the right way. Diet is just how you eat, but you do it well and you maintain uh, a relatively a fit and lean figure. So. You know, are you are you depriving yourself of calories? Are you doing, you know, so answer it for all of us and answer it for yourself so that we know what you're doing too. Okay. So, well, first of all, this is fun. Let me take your first question about starvation mode. Um, let's talk about the principles of weight loss. To lose weight, you need to be eating fewer calories than you're burning. That's just how it goes. It all comes down to that calorie balance. Now, there's this belief out there, like with starvation mode, that you can limit calories so much that eventually your metabolism will slow down to the point where it can drop infinitely to prevent you from losing more weight. That just doesn't happen. You see that if, if you're watching the news and you're looking at some of the war-torn countries um, in the past and places where there was famine, people end up being skin and bones. You know, Ultimately, you do die from starvation. And if there was such a mechanism that would 
prevent metabolism from dropping so much of that would happen, then you wouldn't see that. That's not to say that metabolic adaptation does not occur because it certainly does. So you would expect just based on losing total body weight um, and maybe losing some fat-free mass, some muscle, you would expect metabolism to drop a little bit, right? So it takes less energy to move around if you're a lighter person. You would expect that. But with metabolic adaptation, you see drops in resting energy expenditure that far exceed what would be predicted just based on loss in weight and lean mass alone. So that is a thing, but it's limited in how much that can occur, right? I mean, in some studies, you show a 6% drop in the total amount of calories you burn per day, 6%. Um, I mean, that's certainly a drop. It certainly can affect things. It might amount to 100, 150 calories. Um, and, it, and it could, it, just depending on how much weight you lose, it could even maybe go as high as like 10%. But it's never going to drop so low that it's going to prevent weight loss. Like eventually, if you're dropping calories down, you will hit a point where you're, where you're going to start losing weight. It may not be comfortable. You may be really hungry, but eventually you will hit that point. So what happens with these folks who claim that they lose weight eating more calories? Like, and I've had clients have this happen to them as well. And people on Avatar, you know, where maybe they drop calories down to like what they think is 1400 and they're tracking that food. They think they're hitting it. Um, and they're just not losing weight. And then, so I'm like, you know what, why don't we bring your calories up to 1700? Let's just add 300 calories in, see what happens. And lo and behold, these folks start losing weight. And they think, oh my gosh, that's magic. I just wasn't eating enough. But what's really happened is mainly two things. One is that metabolism probably has increased somewhat. So when you give people more calories, they have more energy, right? So that means that they're going to probably put more into their workouts. They're probably going to be burning more calories during their workouts. If you have the energy to really go hard, you see it there. You see more calorie expenditure doing basic things like taking walks at night. Maybe they were so lethargic before they were leaning on things. Um, so increases in non-activity energy expenditure goes up, right? So meat goes up. And that's the main reason where people start burning more calories. And it's not a conscious thing. They don't realize it. They're just tired all the time. And when you give them just a little bit more in terms to eat, suddenly they start burning a lot more calories, which in effect puts them back into a calorie deficit and then they start losing weight. So there is a sweet spot for these folks where maybe if you cut too low, um, you become so lethargic and your workouts are so horrible that you're just not burning as many calories. Also, it becomes really, really hard to stick to those calories. And adherence is another huge problem with these yes. folks. So you know, maybe during the week they're eating you know, 1,300 calories, 1,400 calories six days a week, but one of the days a week they fudge it and they go quite a bit higher. Now, they don't necessarily remember that, though. Right. They have this figure, 1,400 calories in their mind. I was doing it almost all the time. I've been so good, and they have really been pretty good. Right. Um, but so adherence, so there's probably a combination of the two there. They have better adherence on higher calories, so they're actually probably eating less when you average things out. And also their energy expenditure can go through the, the roof with meat and just what you're burning in the gym. Yeah, so I I did exactly that over the weekend and last week. I was doing really well on my diet, and you know I, I have a relatively good diet anyway. But then I get to uh, I guess the weekend, and we're at my parents' place in Alabama, and they order pizza, 
And I was like, man, I haven't had pizza in forever. And instead of eating a normal amount of pizza, I kind of went all in. And I was like, man, this is really good. This is really good. And then, and then I flogged myself, right? So I do the vlogging the next day and I go for an extra long run and, and all of that stuff. So I, I don't want to punish myself for the diet, but I also need to check it at the door and say, hey, this is not how I need to do this. I don't need to to lose it when I finally allow myself to have food that I don't normally most commonly eat. Do you see this with your clients and what are some of the ways that you address this with them? For me. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So guilt will kill your diet. Okay. And people like you who are, you know, hypervigilant, people who are athletes, people who are training for shows, these are the folks that really have this very black and white outlook on things. They're what we call rigid dieters. They're not very flexible. So they basically feel like they really need to be perfect. They hold themselves to high standards all the time. And so when you eventually get hungry, which happens when you're restricting a lot and you have something that you feel like you shouldn't and that you know has a lot of calories and it's not the best for you, it it might kill your diet and you get a little taste of it. The floodgates open and you're like, oh my God, it's almost like the last supper and you know, you can't stop eating it. Like this is a really, really common thing. But I think the problem that exacerbates this is first of all, that last supper mentality, which is, that's what I refer to it as, which is, oh my gosh, this is so off limits. This is the last time I'm going to have this in a long time. I'm never going to do this again. So let me enjoy it. I'm just going to go ham. I'm going to go all the way because I already messed up and you have that guilt associated with it. But I think if we could change our mindset towards dieting and understand that you don't need to be perfect, the human body doesn't necessarily see things in 24 hour cycles in one day cycles. It's looking at an average of what you eat over time. So in a whole week, if you mess up and you have a little bit more calories and you go over your calories with pizza, that's awesome and delicious. That's totally okay. Just know that the rest of the week, you can totally make that up. So you don't need to go like all out and YOLO having that pizza and just continue and continue to eat it. So I think that when you have a mentality where I shouldn't be doing this, this is off limits, like, and you're just very rigid, I think that exacerbates every problem. So you could, if you could approach it with more of an outlook on an average of what you do for the week and having flexibility and that you can always make up for things, it allows people to fall off a little bit, but get back on the wagon faster and without that guilt, because the guilt is a huge problem. Life is too short to be living with guilt when you're eating certain things. That's true. I, I think the big problem also with the majority of people that do this is the fact that they'll do it and then suddenly the, the thought process is I've already fallen off. So if I can't do it, then I just won't do it. And then they, they give up. And so instead of getting back on and, and focusing over time what needs to be done, uh, it's it's like exercise, and I mentioned this multiple times on the podcast. You know, I, uh, something happens and they don't work out, and then it's going to take too long to get to where they need to be, and so they just don't don't do it. And I I tell people uh, a little bit of something's better than a whole lot of nothing, and we have to continue at at picking away at those little things, and you know uh, the the self uh, flagellation and and people concerning about you know beating themselves up. It it's not welcome to you. Right. So we don't like it. We don't like it when we do that to ourselves. So I think that 
a better idea and a better concept is being gentle and understanding that it was just a day and this is just a day out of the week. It's just a week out of the month. It's just a month out of the right, like to, to get back on it and, and create um, a sense of, of purpose behind your diet as opposed to not considering it. And when we do mess up, not to, to beat ourselves up over it. Yeah, I mean, you asked me how, and this ties in really well, you know, from my Instagram post, how I stay so lean all the time. What am I doing, you know, that's making that possible? Well, I'll be honest with you. I weigh less and I have a lower body fat now than I had 15, 20 years ago. And the reason for that is because of this flexibility. I've learned how to be flexible back then, you know, I would beat the heck out of myself for falling off the wagon and it made it that much harder to get on. I had so much shame about it. I mean, mm. my, I had a really severe eating disorder. Um, I would restrict to the point I would lose all this weight, get super, super lean. And then I would be doing these fitness shows. And afterwards I, I was just so hungry and I would go have a cake. I would eat whole cakes at a time. Um, put myself in the hospital wow. several times with refeeding. Yep. With refeeding syndrome. One time it almost killed me. Actually, I developed SMA and, um, they were like, God, you're, you have no visceral fat. What's going on? Well, I was torturing myself by starving myself. And then I couldn't help at some point, you know, those survival mechanisms kick in your appetite hormones go up. And, you know, that's what happens when your dieting's for, you know, so long and leptin starts to drop and ghrelin's going up and your body and your brain are just screaming at you to eat. And it's just a human instinct. And I, and the problem was when you diet for that long and that hard, you know, all those, those hormones get out of balance. They get out of whack. So even when I should have been full, I wasn't full. I was at the buffet in Vegas. I was going up having ice cream and my oatmeal, like eating so much. <laughs> and so what would happen to me is that I would go through those periods of being really low weight and then I would overeat and I would gain a bunch of body fat. I couldn't stand the way I looked. And so I'd cycle back into this and it was just terrible. So I never could maintain a healthy balance of anything. And most of the time, it backfired to the point where I actually had a higher body fat almost all the time, except for when I was on stage, you know, but this whole finding flexible dieting and the idea that there are no good and bad foods. I mean, it was completely liberating and groundbreaking for me because I was finally able to find a middle ground, you know, where I could be happy. And now I don't even really have to try very hard at all. Um, and I've been flex flexible dieting so long that I don't have to strictly count or anything like that. Now, um, after you sustain a, a, a healthy body weight for long enough, those hormones, everything starts to balance out. And I do a great job of knowing when I'm hungry, knowing when I'm full, I can eye protein and know how much I'm getting. And so really, I just, I let my body do a lot of the talking in recent days. Uh, I think that that just said that comes with experience and it comes with time. That's very important for a lot of people to recognize too, the amount of effort that went into it initially doesn't exist right now, right? Like it's not as effortful. It's not as difficult, but there is a challenge when you first start doing things. Um, and I think that it's important to point out that there's going to be, you know, a flexible diet is helpful, but there are still going to be challenges that come along that you have to put effort in, in order to, to overcome. Uh, with that said, let's talk to the personal trainers and the family that we have here online. And please tell us what we as fitness professionals can do on our end to help support people in their nutritional goals. And by no means am I saying that 
we don't or could not or should not refer out to a registered dietitian. I think that's really valuable and it has a place. But fitness professionals also have a place in helping to support people when it comes to their diet. What can we do on our end to support what you do on your end? Uh-oh. Did I, did I lose you? Oh. Are you talking to fitness trainers or are you talking to me? <laughs> no, talk, talking to you. What can, what can fitness oh, okay. trainers oh, okay, do on okay, our okay. end to support yeah, yeah. what you do on your end? Um, that's a good question. I mean, I think you guys can provide support and accountability. That's really, really important for your clients. And I'm just speaking as a person who built an algorithm that serves a very, very large number of people. Rarely do I take on personal clients anymore, but we do recommend make recommendations for how much a person should eat and um, how much they need to eat each week. And that changes, of course, over time. But the biggest thing that I think could be helpful is you have clients um, who are, I know you guys do, who are on the system and also who have worked with registered dietitians and those dietitians have prescribed actual calorie amounts or macros to hit or have worked with people on diet. Um, but I think, you know, it, in order for a diet to work, it needs to be sustainable for that person. They actually need to be following it, of course, which is the big key. And that's where I think you guys can really help out as coaches is finding out, you know, why somebody may not be able to stick to their diet, what's really going on if they're hitting plateaus and if they're having adherence problems and helping strategize with them and walk with them, hold their hand through this process um, and really also not just providing support, but that accountability too. So sometimes you need a hand held and you need words of encouragement. Sometimes you need, you know, to come at it from a little bit more serious angle. Mm -hmm. So I think that, I think that's what you can do. Now, do you think that the the benefit that people tend to see, you know, we see research that talks about uh, diet and that pretty much any diet that somebody gets on, especially in the early phases, tends to work. Mm -hmm. uh, do you believe that the reason that happens is simply because it's something new that people can adhere to in order to achieve a caloric deficit? I think it is. I, well, I think largely it is now, not completely. Uh -huh. There are other components that come into play. But yeah, when you start something, you're excited about making that lifestyle change. You find yourself really motivated. You dive right in. You're very adherent. And over time, the, that adherence and motivation, just like anything else, starts to wane. Um, but I think it just depends on the case because there are certainly also cases where a diet is successful because they have achieved that calorie deficit. And if you lose enough weight, over time, you are going to start burning fewer calories. I mean, it, and you may get tired, which can actually account for burning a lot less as well. So there's okay. the things that happen when BMR, your resting rate drops, and when exercise efficiency improves, so you're not burning as many calories during a workout. But then, of course, like we talked about, you're lethargic, you're just not moving around as much. That can all make calorie your calorie expenditure go down quite a bit. So in effect, it does erase that calorie deficit. So there's two things happening, like you mentioned, and I think primarily it's adherence. But secondarily, if you lose 30 or 40 or 50 or more pounds on that diet, you're going to hit like a new set point that you're going to have to break through. And the only way to do that is to become motivated again and drop calories or exercise more. So with that said, we, we hear a lot of people talking about these set points, right? Like this is, this is where I 
naturally am like that. And I hear that because I, I hear it a lot of times in, in fitness and human movement science where people go, I naturally just have my feet turn out or I naturally have this. Is there a natural set point for people's weight or is that point that people kind of get to where they're like, I just I'm I'm this weight. I've been this weight. I can't drop any lower. Is is that something that their body just really wants to stay at? Or is it simply because they're they're maintaining a caloric balance and they're not doing enough for a, a caloric deficit? Well, like we spoke about, if you drop calories enough, you will lose weight. But that's not to say that there aren't certain ranges that people's bodies are more comfortable in. For instance, mm -hmm. we see that with women losing their period. Um, I've been able to achieve extraordinary low levels of body fat. Um, and I only lost my period for one month out of all the years that I did it. Whereas I saw, you know, so I was getting to 12%, you know, things like that. But then I, I've had friends who, you know, if they're even down to 17%, they're losing their period. So there is kind of a place where your weight is comfortable and your body does fight to stay there. Now that's not to say that you can't change um, your physical makeup and that, and break through that but it's gonna be very hard. Um, so when you lose enough weight and um, you're losing body fat, the body fat depot kind of sends a message to your brain as left and drops that you need to be eating more food. And ghrelin, same thing, it's going to increase and it's gonna tell your body you need to, to eat more food. And they used to think that that was kind of an acute indicator where just after meals, it kind of worked like, oh, it's signaling for your next meal. And now we're seeing it more of, um, like a long-term signal as well, like your body fat's getting low. And so it's not just a signal to increase appetite or eat, but, but researchers thinking now in the latest years that um, it goes, it takes it a step beyond that. And it's actually preparing your body to official, efficiently store fat. Okay. So your body does want to maintain this balance, but at the same time, you know, I've seen people completely change their bodies. These are people who were pretty overweight and didn't have a whole lot of muscle and they really picked up and got into fitness and built a ton more muscle. And that changed everything in their body. You know, it, it's like I see people who reverse diet. If they reverse diet long enough and they're increasing calories over time, um, and their body gets used to that and they're starting to build more lean mass, that changes their whole metabolism. So you can break through set points, but it, it's not going to happen overnight. This is something that you have to diet in phases to do. It's something that takes years but yeah, so I think that there's a bit of both going on. Um, I wouldn't ever say it's impossible and that you, you just can't lose weight beyond this point. No, I mean, right. it might be hard because your appetite goes up, but right. it's still possible. Um, it goes that way for hypertrophy too. I know that, especially when I was younger, like like many young people, I wanted to build muscle and, and I was like, oh, it doesn't matter how much I eat. I feel like I'm eating all the time and I just can't gain weight. And the fact of the matter was I had to eat more. If I wanted to gain weight, I needed to eat more. There may have been a point that my body liked being at, but at some point, if I took in more calories, I was going to gain weight. I also want to make sure that no trainers ever talk about that being a problem in front of weight loss clients. <laughs> because the last thing a weight loss client wants to hear is how difficult it is for you to gain weight. Uh, and so for, for us, we have to be very careful with what we say and what we put out there because the way we put things down and the way people pick them up 
can be very, very different. So we have to be aware of other people's perspective and look through that lens. Now, with that being said, I want to go back to, to some things that you talked about. You mentioned them several times. You talked about leptin, you talked about ghrelin, uh, you maybe have mentioned a couple other hormones. Can you just kind of go through for us and our audience about what these are, what they do, and what impact they have on diet? Do you want to just talk about uh, appetite hormones, or do you want to talk about calories in versus calories out in general? Just those, what kind of. I think that, that that's kind of people are very confused about what the word metabolism means and all of the components that go into this, and and there's a lot that goes into it. Like if I say oh, weight loss is just about calories in and calories out. Like that makes it sound so simple. It's not simple at all. It's very complex. And there's, there's different components of this that can each be affected that changes things, right? So I think if we're talking a little bit about that, like you mentioned the calorie, uh, the calorie in part right there. So you're talking about what determines how much we eat and that there are appetite hormones that do come into play. There's long-term, long-acting hormones, they're shorter acting hormones. So the long-term ones look at more of the body fat stores in general and what's been happening over time. And if the body fat stores are getting too low and the fat cells are getting too small, you know, you're going to have leptin then dropping, you're going to have ghrelin then going up. Right. And there's other, uh, there's other hormones involved too, the shorter acting ones, which is like CCK and some of the gut hormones that look at things in the short term. So, but there's the symphony of things happening uh, that change the way your brain sees food and prompts you to eat as a safety mechanism. So there's that, that, that determines the calories in portion, as well as just the psychology of eating in general. Like we talked about the rigid versus flexible mindsets, um, you know, whether it's okay to make a mistake or not, if you feel like you totally messed up and, and you have this idea that there's bad foods, when you eat one of those, you might go YOLO on it and just throw in the towel and, say, okay, I'll start tomorrow or maybe in a few days. And then you end up completely overeating, eating, you know, way more than you needed to, if you would have just gotten back on the wagon. So there's that, there's the social influence yeah. of food. And there are people who love to go out with their friends and eat. And when you go out to eat, you know, that food usually doesn't have as much protein, but it's pretty darn laden with fat and carbs. And if you're drinking alcohol and then the sugary alcohol drinks, calories really sneak in there. So there's the social stuff that comes into it. Those are all of the things, you know, reward behaviors by the brain, um, how strongly it reacts to sugar and stuff like that. Um, and there's different people have slightly different responses and the strength of those responses. So that all comes in. That's, those were all the components of how much you eat or the calories inside. Now the calories outside, of course, we've talked about like your resting energy expenditure, which is just how many calories your body burns at rest, how much your organs require your brain, you know, to just do just for me to sit here and do nothing. Um, that makes up about 60 to 70% of a person's total calories burned. So that's really a huge part of it. Um, you've got the thermic effect of food, which is just how many calories you burn to break down food. So when food goes into your body, there's a process of absorbing and metabolizing it and taking it in pathways where it needs to go, that all costs something, that all takes energy. So, and different components of food have a different cost for breaking those down. So your protein is gonna be a lot more expensive to break down, right? You, you could lose somewhere around 20%, even like up to 30% okay. of the calories you eat, yeah, from protein, just burning it. So if you eat 100 calories from protein, 
you, you know, you might only get 70 or 80 of those to really use towards energy. Um, carbs, you know, you only 10% fat is pretty darn efficient. You're almost going to get all those calories, right? So there's that thermic effect of food. There's the thing that we talked about, which is meat that you hear a lot about in the literature, which is just how many calories you burn fidgeting, pacing. It's not really planned exercise. It's just all the things you do to sustain activities of living. And that is the most variable component, I think, of energy expenditure. And there's a huge genetic component to that. Um, so there were twin studies back in the early 90s that um, where they overfed, you know, twins by like a thousand calories, these different sets of identical twins. So they shared the same genes, right? And what we saw was that they all gained different amounts of weight. They all responded differently to those thousand calories. Some barely gained anything at all, even though they were being overfed by a thousand calories for like 80 days. And some gained a ton. I mean, the difference was, and, and the interesting thing was there were differences between the pairs of twins, but within the pairs, they were, they were pretty close. So there's a genetic component with how you're, how well you dissipate off calories from overeating. And, you know, probably the same goes for how much your metabolism adapts to undereating as well. So there's a genetic component to that. But um, what we found is that when your, when your body responds to excess calories by burning off more, it's primarily doing that in the form of neat. So these people who didn't gain much weight when being overfed by that many calories uh, responded really well. They started, you know, pacing a lot more, fidgeting a lot more, you know, they were just highly active people. And then there are the people who just kind of sit there when they're getting overfed and they don't do much more at all. And those are the people who store a lot more fat. So it's just interesting that that's the component of energy expenditure that responds so much to more food. And then finally, there's the cost of exercise and moving around. So those are all the components that make up the energy out. So you can see that there's a lot going on to create that balance between energy in and energy out and a lot of different variables that can be manipulated to get a client to start losing weight again if they've stopped losing weight. Nice. And here's what I really like. I like what's happening because we look at somebody that's talking about nutrition, a registered dietitian, and it's just as important for, for you guys oftentimes to address activity as it is to address the diet. And I think for fitness professionals, it's very important for us too, that we're not just addressing exercise while the person is with us, but we have to talk about the non-exercise activity. We have to be supportive with the diet. We can give support. We can give some guidance. Uh, the, the certified nutrition uh, course that we have at NASM is very helpful for personal trainers to, to give an understanding of what that's like. And it's something that, um, that I think that you, uh, a good subject matter expert, that, that helps to contribute to, to the, the field of what we do. Um, and so I think it's really valuable for us to understand that that for many years, personal trainers were like, don't talk about diet. Remember the time that somebody uh, gave their client ephedra and and then their client died and then there was you know <clears throat> litigation and all this kind of stuff. Well, we we don't we don't do that. We, we don't do that. But that kept us from being able to talk about diet for 15 years. And then finally, um, other groups started coming in and saying it is valuable and important for fitness professionals to address diet. It doesn't take away from what 
uh, registered dietitian does. Just like when we have clients that have boo-boos and you're a corrective exercise specialist, doesn't mean you never refer out to a physical therapist or a chiropractor. Like there are times that you can address it as a fitness professional. And there are times people really need much more help and much more guidance from somebody that has a specialization and education in that field. And that's why we want to have people like you on the show is that we want to learn from you, but also learn when is the best time to to pass somebody back off to, to, to somebody that is real more focused in the, in the field. Same thing with you, right? Like I'm sure that you, uh, you probably have a lot more education in fitness than a lot of other people. So you can address some of the fitness components, but of incredible value, personal trainers, it is not just the time that you were working with a client that we need to support that client. They're paying for the hour, but they're paying, they should be paying for you to support them throughout the week. And what that means is setting up a schedule for uh, understanding what that non-exercise activity looks like. And that is valuable. You're gonna burn way more calories, non-exercise activity throughout the day than any one hour exercise program that you could put together. I, I think that this is so highly valuable, Katie, that you mentioned that. And it, it's wildly important for us to understand. And this is, and they're the simple things that because they're so simple, people don't take seriously, right? Like taking the stairs or getting, you know, taking the, you know, getting off a, a flight or two early and taking the stairs. And because it's so simple, people don't do it. But the same thing goes with diet sometimes too, right? Like there are some things that are just so simple, but they almost seem too nominal to actually make a difference. But the, a yeah. lot of those little, little things add up. What are some of the, the little, little things that you see adding up? And you mentioned the alcoholic drinks and the, or the sugary drinks and things like that. What are some of those other things that you're not saying don't have, but they kind of creep up on people and we don't necessarily consider it? And maybe there are things that we should consider. Well, let's talk about a little bit first about what you just said with energy expenditure and NEAT and making sure that your client um, isn't falling victim to becoming so lethargic that they're not moving anymore and now their weight loss diet has stalled. You know, I love the fact that you said that um, that personal trainers really should be educating their clients on nutrition. That's something I forgot to add that you said when we were talking earlier and I was talking about the coaching and support component. There's just the education component. We need these people to understand that it is about calories. Everything I've talked about, you know, regardless of what they hear out there where, oh, there's this mechanism to hijack your metabolism by eating low carbs. That'll change everything. Now I don't have to worry about calories. Right. No, it's always about calories. When a diet works, it's because of calories. And, you know, so getting back to the neat component, though, that's just something I wanted to add that the education, we really need you guys to be doing some nutrition education. Like that's important to pair that with their exercise program. But as far as neat goes, something that you can do if you start to see that your client is hitting this plateau um, is maybe having them wear, get one of those Fitbits or Apple watches, something that's, or a simple pedometer, something that's going to that's gonna track their steps. Because again, this is something that's subconscious. Neat isn't planned exercise. They're not going to realize that that's dropping. They're just going to think, oh, my metabolism's changing. And it's because it sees that I'm not eating enough. And now that's, you know, what they're going to think, but really you're just tired, man. And we need to make sure that somehow you keep these levels of activity up, even if you're not thinking about it. So I think that those wearing those devices and really encouraging them to hit a number of steps or to move a certain amount 
or to burn a certain number of calories through their activity, since most of it is, like you mentioned, not in organized activity like exercise, but outside of that, that's one way you can get your clients to start really tracking that. Um, You asked another question about where little things can add up in terms of where your client can stall with weight loss. Um, One of the things that I've seen, actually a lot of them have to do with nutrition. That's really what it is. Um, So adherence, the longer you're on a diet, the more you're going to start to want more food and the more you're going to crave food. Um, So you're going to have to start getting strategic with keeping them in a calorie deficit. And that that might include organizing refeed days, right? Days where the client is going to eat a little bit more um, so that they have something to look forward to. Psychologically, it's easier to stick to their diet that way. Or maybe even doing mini cuts where they're doing, you know, a month or two of just dieting and then maybe a week they're going back to like maintenance levels and, you know, they have that time to look forward to. And then their motivation can increase again and they dive back into the diet. They're really able to adhere so there are these different ways that you can increase a client's ability to, to stick to the diet because that's the only way they're going to have success. Now, as far as individual food components and where people can go wrong, I see people using spray butter and eating it like drinking it like even drinking it. Like I see people like I'm serious and, and this is horrible, but that used to happen to me when I was starving myself training for shows. I'm like, oh, it says it's zero calories. Okay, it's it's zero calories per like a single spray and it's got trace <laughs> calories in it. Nothing comes for free like that. And if you spray it enough times, man, those calories can really add up. That's not zero calories. Okay. And that goes the same for the Pam cooking spray. Who sprays a quarter of a second? No one does. That's not realistic. You're just spraying on there for seconds and not logging it, not counting it. Oh, didn't matter. Right. And so the things you put in your beverages, right? Your creamers, easy to forget that you did that. And there's all these things that add up eating vegetables. People think, well, vegetables are free. I eat as many vegetables as I want. And I don't have to consider that that's actual calories. Well, if you're only having a couple broccoli florets, that's true. That's, but really, if you're using that to add volume to your diet, that can add up to hundreds of calories. So, and when you take all of these things together, that really matters. And also consider that people are terrible with portion sizes, okay? Like our portion sizes in America are so skewed because when you dine out, you get like this giant plate of stuff and you start to see that as normal. So I think educating the clients on what a typical portion size looks like and how many calories that has in it is really important. I see people, I've had clients entering all their stuff into their tracker carefully Um, but then I look at the portions of what they're having. I'm like, okay, you had this giant salad and then you said you had two teaspoons of ranch. We, we know that you didn't really have two teaspoons of ranch. (laughs) There was a lot of ranch on there and it really added up. So those are the things that I, that I with some leaves inside of it. Right. Exactly. (laughs) So let's, let's be realistic. I know that's what I do. So I'm speaking from personal experience. So yeah, there's a lot of places where these little calories and things can add up on the calories inside. Uh, all right, so here I want to I want to get to some questions that we may be having from the group. So I'm going to bounce this over to Greg, and then once we're done with that, I've got a I've got another question that I want to ask before we close out. But Greg, do you have any questions that have popped up throughout the feed? Oh, try again, Greg. I can't hear you. 
When you're on mute, it makes it tough for people to hear you. Uh, yeah, so James in the chat wants to know, when eating mainly fresh whole foods, what do you recommend uh, people use for accurate macro diet when it doesn't have a barcode to necessarily scan for something like that? Oh, when eating a fresh whole food? You know, I think it's it's fine to, well, first of all, you the most accurate way of doing things is to weigh things with a scale. If you want to get really granular, it really is. Um, but that's a lot to ask people to do. So if they're willing to do that, that's fine. But again, if something's not sustainable and it's miserable for them and they won't stick to it, then we need to not do that. And we need to go ahead and just use what's in that foods database. So for example, a banana, I have clients who weigh that out. They love it. And I have clients who just enter one banana, one medium banana. Now, is it going to be exactly right on with the macros? No, it's probably going to be off a few here and there. But, you know, as long as you're consistently doing that every day, it should even itself out over time. So, you know, I think you have to kind of weigh between trying to hit things exactly and just doing good enough. Usually the good enough will work for people. Also, it's important to remember that there's like a 20% variance on food labels anyways. So the macros are never going to be exactly right on. And it's important to remember that. And I also do something where I give clients, if they, if they aren't willing to weigh, and I usually do have people weigh at least for the first couple of weeks or a week or two so that they get an idea of portion sizes and then you kind of get it. But there's also little rules that you can put in, like the size of a fist is like a cup of carbs. Okay. If you're having oatmeal or pasta or rice, you know, your palm is about three ounces. The thickness of your palm and the size of your palm is about three ounces if you're a woman, about four ounces of meat if you're a male. So you can do that with meat. Um, and then, of course, you have the teaspoon is like the size of your thumbnail. Um, a tablespoon is half a golf ball. So there are little things you can get them to, to do to estimate, too. Okay. And then Sher Sherry wanted to know if you could uh, tell a little bit more about the app, uh, your app and, and the tracking of flexible eating that way. Yeah. So the app tells you how many grams of protein, carbs and fats to eat. Um, and then it kind of makes it a game like you try to to make the circles turn green by the end of the day for each one of those. And if you're way over on fat and you're way under on carbs, there's a flexibility component where you can move like a little dial and it allows you to take energy from the carbs and allocate it towards fat. So you don't have to be exactly right on, on each of those, like the calories from those are interchangeable. So it's not like you have to hit each one perfectly every day. Um, so you just want to get into the right ranges. And then there's a feature that actually adjusts your macros every single day. So if you're like Rick and you went out and had pizza and you, you were like, okay, I'm just going to log all this food, even though I feel kind of like I shouldn't exactly have done it. That's okay. I'm going to log all of it. Oh my gosh, I'm a thousand calories over. Well, if you have five days left till your weigh-in period, what the app is going to do is it's going to drop your daily calories by 200 the rest of the days of the week in order to nudge you back into those ranges so that you get back on average. So that really plays on flexibility. Um, and so, yeah, and every week you weigh in just like you would with a coach, you enter your body fat, your weight. And if your goal was to say, lose one pound a week and you only lost a half pound and you fell short, what the, what the web app will do is it'll drop your calories down and gets you to start losing the appropriate amount of weight. So it's very responsive to your body until it 
until it discovers the calories you really need. So it's interactive with the person. Um, and Rick, you asked what I was up to, and it's building that app. Yeah. We have been doing it for so long now, and it, it's awesome. It's going to be great. But in the meantime, we have a web app. So it's on our website. People download it as a PWA. So they still interact with it. Like you can still use it. But we're making an app for the um, for Apple and for um, in the Google Play Store. So that's a little bit more about it. Awesome. Congratulations on that yeah. project. I really, really hope that that goes well for you. And I'm glad that we can be an outlet to help support some of uh, our trainers' clients with that as well. Hey, Greg, do we have any other questions that have come through? Yeah, one last one from Ava. She wants to know, how can you find the appropriate balance of macros when running uh, recommends 70% carbs, but in order to lose weight, I can't go over 50% carbs. You can... Oh, you can lose weight going over percent carbs. Um, it all comes down to how many calories you're eating. So I think 70% though of your diet from carbs is quite a lot. That doesn't leave much room for protein and fat, depending on how many calories you're eating, right? I mean, if you're eating 2000 calories and you're at 70% carbs, that's 1400 calories coming from carbs. So you only have 600 left for fat, um, which you're probably going to need at least maybe 400 of those to meet your essential fatty acid needs. So you want to make sure you're eating enough fat, but then that doesn't leave enough for protein really. So I think 70 is a little bit high anyways, depending on what your calorie expenditure is. Now, if you're eating 4,000 calories, that changes things. That leaves a lot more room for protein and fat. Maybe you can do that, but really there's no magical ratio when it comes to fat loss. And the way I tell my clients to do it is, you really want to figure out first how much protein you need. That's going to be important, right? One of the most important macros, especially for weight loss, because it's it's so filling and it's also thermogenic. So like we were saying, it costs a lot more energy to metabolize it. So you're getting almost like free calories that aren't going to be stored as fat from protein. It just really helps with adherence. And then, of course, there's keeping lean mass on, which is important because if you're losing weight, you want most of that weight to be coming from fat, not muscle. So I always tell them, figure out the protein needs first. A good general, I could talk about protein all day, but a general rule of thumb is really about 0.8 to one gram per pound of body weight of protein. So 0.8 to one, somewhere in there. And then figure out your, your carbs and fats from the remaining calories that you have left, right? And since you're a runner, you wanna make sure that, you know, maybe 70% of what is remaining comes from carbs, that's fine and then 30% from fat, but 70% of total calories is, seems a little bit extreme, but yeah, again, when it does come to weight loss, remember it is all about the calories. So there's no reason that you can't lose weight eating more than 50% of your calories in the form of carbs. Gotcha. All right. I like that. Thank you so much for sharing it. And I have one more question for you. And it really has to do with um, with cravings. So when I have clients that have food cravings and maybe they go like I did with the, the pizza or something like that, how do you talk to your clients about uh, food cravings or if they're like, oh, I really, this is my, my bugaboo, um, that during this time or during this, I, I get these cravings for food. Good. Talk us through the cravings and what people can do to support that, that um, fall within this flexible diet that you're talking about. Right. So the more a food is considered off limits, the more you're going to crave it. 
And this used to happen to me. I craved chocolate so bad. And so when I finally got my hands on it, I couldn't stop eating it. It ruined my diet every time. It was absolutely terrible. And I mean, it would blow it for an entire week at a time. I would eat so much in a single day. So it's really hard to get back into a deficit after that. And that's because, again, my mentality was so rigid. I felt that it was bad. It was something that I shouldn't be eating. Um, but once I switched over into moderation and I allowed to have myself to have a little bit of that every day, it took about two months before I really got it and before those cravings stopped. But I don't even crave chocolate anymore ever, ever. And in 2014, that was my first experience with flexible dieting was I allowed myself to have a piece of chocolate every single day training for that show. And that was like a pro show as well there in Phoenix at the time. And I ended up eating chocolate every single day as an experiment to myself, several pieces, fitting it within my allotted calories. And I ended up winning that show. I still won that show. And so it was this light bulb moment that, man, I've been depriving of myself and that's only made these cravings worse. And I don't need to do that anymore. And once that became something that could be part of my diet, it wasn't, it didn't have this power over me anymore. Um, so I think that's one thing you can try is changing the outlook on it. And as long as it's not like a giant piece of cake where it's going to take, you know, up a ton of their calories and then there's nothing left to make sure you're getting your vitamin and minerals from, I think sort of training people to, to actually implement one of these off limits things in a couple days of the week or even a little bit every day may change how the, the brain sees that food. Now, understand that there's going to be a period of time where it takes a while to get used to that and you're still going to crave it. it. It takes, it took, like I said, some time for me to actually realize that. So that's one thing people can try is actually implementing that snack as part of an organizer. So then the person feels like they're not cheating and it's not bad. So changing their approach to the food. But then, you know, there's certainly other clients that have something coming up and it, since it takes a while to change the outlook on that food, maybe that's something that they shouldn't really be doing at this very moment until you have time to train them with it. Um, and those people who can't seem to stop eating it once it gets in their house, maybe need to not buy it and have it so readily available into their house. I prefer option one though, but there's also option two. Um, and then substituting something in there that's similar for that, right? Like if you're, if your kryptonite is ice cream, maybe doing something a little more macro friendly, like halo top, or you could do the ice cream and just have a smaller serving size if that works for the person. But if it doesn't, and they've got to have that high volume thing, doing a substitute that's almost just as good in the meantime. But yeah, I think we need to be, what we need to be thinking about with our clients is doing like a complete overhaul of how they see food. And that's going to change the way the brain responds to it once it's no longer considered a goodie that's like off limits. I love it. I think it's valuable. It's also really cool to have somebody speaking from an experience that they've had because a lot of times, you know, we get people that can speak to something and they speak to it from their client's perspective or a patient's perspective. We have clients that have done this, but it's really interesting to have somebody with the education that you have that also has gone through the experience of dieting, of, of ups and downs, of also training for uh, competitions and having to lose weight, same way with uh, like fight sports where we have to, to, to cut weight in order to, to get into a weight class that we want to fight in. Uh, these are challenging things and to, to see what you've done and how you've applied the flexible diet and still been able to lose weight uh, or body fat specifically is incredibly valuable. So I want to say 
Thank you, Katie Coles, for being here and and providing our community some insights from what the things that you do and what you work on. And I want you to shout out your social media. How can people find you? How do they get Avatar? Talk us through those things. Yeah, so um, I'm at my Instagram handle is the Fit Dietitian with an underscore between the Fit and between Fit and Dietitian. So at the underscore Fit underscore Dietitian. Um, also you can follow avatar nutrition and that's just the handle on Instagram. You can look up our Facebook pages. Um, and I'm under my name, um, and we're under avatar nutrition. So we're also on Twitter. Um, my business partner is pretty active on Twitter with avatar, but personally I haven't used mine in a while. So yeah, mostly most of my stuff is on Instagram. Excellent. Well, I follow you on Instagram and Avatar. Good stuff. It's really enjoyable to to watch. And not only do you just post pictures, but you do post educational content. And that's what I really like about uh, your Instagram handle. So please, if you guys want to to hear some information, not just see a, a photo, but to, to hear some content about the education and diet and things like that, then then you have a really good handle to follow. And I appreciate the work that you've done and what you're doing. Thank you for being on the show. Uh, and, and I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to do this with us. Absolutely, Rick. Thanks for having me. And if you guys have extra questions, you can DM my Instagram if you want. Perfect. Yeah. Awesome, y'all. Thank you so much for being here. This is the NASM CPT Podcast. My name is Rick Ritchie. I want to see you on Friday if you can make it back for our Facebook Live. We're going to have uh, Nathan Hyland on the show, and we're going to be talking about the uh, the international outreach that NASM is doing. And also, I'm sure we're not going to get away without talking about fight sports because uh, of his extensive background in fight sports, in training, and being an owner of a fight sport promotion for quite some time. So thank you again for listening, and we'll see you next time.